So back in August, my family and I went on a six-day touristy vacation, and one of the places we went to was New York City. Mmm, that's right. <laughs> uh, the reason, or one of the things that we wanted to do there was we had all sorts of things we wanted to see, from the Statue of Liberty to, to um, yeah, I can't even remember all the places we went to, but we knew that we needed to figure out how to use the subway system because this guy was not going to be driving around New York City. And so we figured out the subway system, and in case you're curious, it's, it's pretty easy to get in. So they have these uh, turnstiles with little kiosks, and there's two ways to pay. You can either, either have a prepaid card that you swipe through, and it charges you like $3 to get in, or what we did is you can use Google Pay or Apple Pay on your phone. Just open up the app, hold it to the thing, and within a second, it'll give you a very delightful beep, and then you can just walk through. And so the first day we're figuring this out, and thankfully there wasn't like the stereotypical huge crowd behind us trying to get through. So we had our time to, okay, how does this work? And we had five of us. So we get through, beep, 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 beep. So we all get through, and you know, first day is fine. And the second day we're going around New York City once again, and we go out, everything works fine. And we need to get back to the hotel, and so we go back to the subway, and by this time, I'm feeling pretty comfortable. We've done this a few times, and everything has worked great. And so I'm like, Amy, I got this one. So I got out my phone. Beep, child number one. Beep, child number two. Beep, child number three. Beep, Amy walks through. <laughs> no beep. I, I, I hold my, I'm trying to turn, push this turnstile to get through, but it's not working. And so I, I try a different one. It's not working, and so I, we, I had a backup plan. I had another credit card, so I swipe over, get my other credit card, I hold it up, nothing. A apparently, Google Pay had just decided I was done paying for the day. <laughs> and so in that moment, I realized there's a problem, and I look up at Amy, and she has eyes like this. <laughs> and, and you know, when you see your wife with those eyes, it's like, figure this out. So I'm looking around at options, and maybe 25 feet away, I see this, this woman in uniform behind the counter surveying the area. And I'm, so if she's there, I'm looking at her, but she is looking off to the side. Like, that, she's not even looking at me. She's eyes off to the side. And I'm, I'm trying to get her attention, like, I need help. Can you open this for me? But she's just not looking at me. So I look back at Amy. Figure this out. You know, I'm just hearing this in my head. Figure this out. And by now, the kids also were getting wide eyes because our subway was coming and we needed to get on it. And I'm like, what do I do? And on the one hand, this was New York City. I've heard news stories. I was afraid of leaving my wife and three kids all alone on the other side of this turnstile, not knowing what could happen to them. On the other hand, I'm afraid of what this lady would do in the name of the law. And I didn't, do they put you in jail? Is there a fine? I don't know. I'm a tourist. I have no idea what's going on. And so I, I look back at this lady. I'm, I'm looking at her. She's off to the side. Look at her again. She, her eyes are off to the side. By now I can hear the train coming. It's like, I got to do something. And here's what I'm thinking in my mind. And by the way, this all happened in the span of like 15 seconds. <laughs> here's what I'm hearing in my mind. The reason she's not looking at me is because she's, this is what she's saying. She's saying, darling, I see you've already paid for four people and you're a tourist and you're having problems. You've paid enough. Just go ahead and jump over. I'm not watching. <laughs> but at the same time, in my head, I'm thinking, they have, they have security footage of this. And I don't want to be on the nightly news. Like, this could be a ministry-ending thing for me. And so I'm caught. 
there's these conflicting fears. Let's get that off the screen. It's kind of, <laughs> kind of creepy. I'm caught between these two fears. Like, do I, do I help my family or do I go over and, you know, miss the train? What do I do? And I'm here to confess to you today. <laughs> that I jumped over a New York City subway turnstile <laughs> and did not pay for it. <laughs> Now, if I had just said that, like, hey, you know what? I was in New York, and I, I jumped over a turnstile without paying for it. You would instantly judge me, like, oh, that's horrible. Yeah. But now that you've heard the story, oh, there's conflicting fears. That I'm, I just chose the greater fear. Maybe you're like, oh, yeah, I've, I've done that too. This is something that's true of all of us. We all arrange our life around our greatest fears. And sometimes it happens in the subway with your wife and kids on one side of a turnstile and the attendant looking at you from the other direction. Sometimes it's, it's in other ways that we have this conflict of fears pulling us in different directions. I know in middle school and high school, you've got a lot of conflicting fears. And I think they just change and mature over lifetime. They, they don't really change their essence. It's just that they mature. But I know in grade school, in, in middle school and high school, one of the biggest fears that you have is being alone. Or more specifically, not having friends. That is a crisis that the middle school, high school student plays over and over and over again in their minds. What if I don't have friends? What if I'm alone? And that is a horrible fear to have. And so when the middle school, high school student thinks about their day, they intentionally arrange their lives around that fear so that they'll be at a certain place with a certain friend so that they'll meet up and, and walk together to the bus or sit together at lunch. Like they're arranging their life around this fear. And we all do that. But I know in middle school and high school, there's another fear that just about every student has, I hope all students have, a fear of getting in trouble. There are rules. And every, every one of us, to some degree, is in, in, you know, in fear of breaking the rules and getting in trouble. But here's the kicker. Sometimes there will be times when both fears are present at the same place and the same time. Because sometimes your friends will be really impressed with you and like you a lot more if you break a rule. And so now you're being pulled in two directions. Do I listen to my fear of not wanting to be alone or do I listen to my fear of not wanting to get into trouble? And let's be honest, sometimes we pick the fear of getting into trouble. And by the way, parents and all of us, when you're addressing someone who has done something wrong, done something bad, it's, it, it works in the short term to say, don't do that again. But what's really helpful is we, when you understand the fears that they were responding to. I understand you didn't want to be alone. And it's so easy for me as an adult to say, well, I guess you need a new group of friends because that doesn't address the fear of not having them. See, fears can add a complicated layer to your life. And the, 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 really, tr the really hard thing is that we, uh, we, we rarely pay attention to what's driving them. Another thing that I know is true is that while we arrange our life around our greatest fears, we don't always pick the right one to be the greatest one. Uh, I think of a stereotypical guy, and I know this doesn't apply to all guys, but I am a guy, so it kind of applies to me. It's this, like when, when you know you need to go to the doctor, it's time for that annual checkup, or you got like a weird thing going on and you, you know you should have it checked out, or let's just 
Another area, let's say that you know you need to go to the dentist, it's time for a cleaning, or you got a little toothache, but part of you says, don't do that. There's a fear of going to the dentist or a fear of going to the doctor. Why is that? Well, dentist, I can understand. Um, doc, and here's what I think is true of a lot of guys. The reason why we are afraid of going to get help is because we think they're going to say, you're stupid. Why aren't you flossing? Why aren't you brushing? Why are you eating that way? We think they're just going to judge us. And so I'd rather deal with my pain than deal with the pain of being judged. So we're constantly trying to navigate which fear is the better one to listen to. And isn't it true we often listen to the one we shouldn't? So as we understand our fears, what I want to do is look at some wisdom from Jesus and from the scriptures to understand why it is we often listen to the wrong ones. Why is it that even though we know fearing God with a healthy fear will put to death all other unhealthy fears, why is it that you still hold on to some unhealthy fear? I'm afraid I won't be worthy. I'm afraid I won't have enough. I'm afraid of being alone. I'm afraid that people won't think I'm worth anything. And you know, if you're a Christian, you know that there are plenty of Bible passages you could pull to and offset any of those lies. But you still keep going back to that pet fear. So even though in this series we've already told you that a healthy fear of God will put to death every unhealthy one, Maybe it's time to think about why it is we often hold on to what's unhealthy. So the first place we're going to turn to is the beginning. Genesis chapter 4, where we see what fear is able to do. And it's the account of Cain and Abel. And if you're familiar with the story, we, you know that this is the, the account of the very first murder in the Bible. Cain and Abel were brothers. Abel took care of livestock, and so when he gave offerings and sacrifices to God, he would give of the animals. Cain was a man of the fields. He was in agriculture, and so when he would give offerings to God, it it was based on what he had. But it wasn't so much the kind of offering, it was the heart behind it. What we can piece together is that when Abel gave an offering, it was sacrificial, it was wholehearted. He, He loved God, and he showed it through what he gave. But when Cain gave an offering... It wasn't with the same attitude. It was more of an obligation. And so Cain became resentful of Abel because he understood that things were different with Abel and he wasn't favored like Abel was. And he's had this different view of things. And so Cain had this idea in mind to fix the problem. God intervenes before he can do anything. God says, Cain, I know what you're about to do. I know what's on your mind. Listen to me. And here's this one verse from Genesis chapter 4. God said to him, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? You know what's right and wrong. But if you do not do what is right, just picture this. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. One of the reasons we can have a disordered view of our fears is because quite often, we can find a solution that seems to give a shortcut to what we need. Now, what was Cain afraid of? He was maybe afraid of not being worthy. 
He was afraid of being second place, always being behind his brother. Um, if you're meeting with your group this week, you can talk about maybe some of the underlying fears that Cain was trying to, to manage in his life. But Cain saw sin as a solution. And this is important. Let's just keep in mind that Cain had a legitimate problem in his life. He was feeling undervalued. He was feeling like second place. And he didn't understand it all. He needed people to speak into him. But he knew the problem. He didn't like the way he felt. And now he saw a solution that sin offered. If you take out your brother, there won't be any competition. So that's the reason why we sometimes disorder our fears. Number two, sin applies an illegitimate solution to a legitimate problem. Just to help you understand that an illegitimate solution is one that doesn't work. But a legitimate problem is something that's really a problem. For example, think about a time you got in trouble as a kid. Or if you were the perfect child, think about your sibling when they got in trouble. (laughs) So they got caught doing something they shouldn't do. And what was their response? What was your response every single time? You never pointed to the solution you came up with. You pointed at the problem. Why did you hit your brother? Well, he said this to me and he did this. And we respond with the problem because we know the solution was illegitimate. It was not worth it. And so when it comes to the fears in your life, you'll see all sorts of options out there. And by the way, the other thing you can talk about in your groups this week, this won't be gossip because you have my permission. Did Pastor Matt do the right thing? (laughs) Was that a sin for me to jump the turnstile and, you know, be with my family? You you feel free to judge me and call me out if I need to be called to repentance. Um, But when, when sin gets a feel for the fears that you have, it's always going to offer an illegitimate solution. So maybe think about that in your life. What's something you've been afraid of and you've been jumping to sin as the solution? Well, I'm afraid that I'm not being valued enough at my work. So I'll do what I can to get a little extra off the books. I'm afraid that this person isn't valuing me as much as they should. So whenever I get a chance, I'll lower them down a few pegs with some gossip. Whatever fear you have, it's so easy to turn to sin for your solution, but just know it is an illegitimate one. And as we're going to see, it actually puts you in a place where it's not giving you a solution at all. It's actually making you a slave. It wants to have you. And when you follow that solution, it gets you stuck in a cycle where you keep doing it over and over, and it just keeps you stuck. And your Father in heaven wants you to know that. So why do we disorder our fears? Why do we pick the wrong one? Sometimes it's because we're turning to sin as the illegitimate solution. You look throughout the Old Testament, you see this come up over and over again. We see people like Abraham. Oh, I love Abraham. Hero of the faith. But do you know what he did to his wife? He was traveling to a distant country and he said, man, my wife is so beautiful that when they see her, they're going to kill me and take her. So he's like, okay, Sarah, here's the deal. When we go to this place, you're my sister, okay? That's, that's going to be our story. And because of that, they took her because they didn't know she was a married woman. He was playing off of a fear, and it didn't end well. We see this with Moses. Oh, man, Moses had all sorts of fear. 
he was fearful that he wouldn't have the words to say when, when God called him to lead the people. And so he said, can you send anyone else? And God got angry at him. We see this even in David, whom God referred, God referred to David as a man after God's own heart. What did David do? Well, he was afraid that he wasn't a king like every other king. And so he decided, I, earned, I deserve more. And so he took a woman who was married and then he murdered her husband. Fears, disordering of fears, sin plays a crucial part. And so this takes us all the way to Jesus' day when the, the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, they knew sin was a big deal and they knew sin was not a good solution. And so they took it to the extreme through legalism. They impressed upon the people, you need to live in this certain way. Forget about what's happening in your heart. Just follow the rules and we'll be okay. And when Jesus showed up in that culture, he challenged it. And this takes us to Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus is gathering his disciples for the first time, and then he meets someone with an amazing name. Matthew chapter 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. And there's, um, we don't need to get into this too far, but we don't know exactly what kind of a tax collector he was. But it, it, some have said that he was more of a toll keeper, where if you went along a certain road or were selling certain items in an area, you had to pay the tax or pay the toll. Um, others think that he might have been a, <laughs> a tax collector of tax collectors. So he was in charge of taking all the different blocks that the Roman Empire would, would offer, and then he would assign them or take payment for them for people who wanted to purchase them. So either way, we know that Matthew was successful and he was hated because the Jewish people viewed Matthew as a traitor, someone who was working for the Roman Empire that was occupying Judea. People hated him. He was not keeping the rules. So Jesus comes up to him, and I'm sure the Pharisees, the, the religious people, were just keeping an eye on this, like, ooh, lay into him. Jesus saw a man named Matthew, and he said to Matthew, follow me. And he told him. And Matthew got up and walked with him. Now, you have to understand what this meant for Matthew. As Mark and Luke also record this, they, they emphasize that Matthew didn't just walk away from the table for a moment and have a conversation with Jesus while keeping his hand on things. Matthew left it behind, also known as Levi. Matthew slash Levi, he left it behind and he followed Jesus. The implication being he left his life behind and he went towards something new. That's scary. Even though he had this religious leader demonstrating this incredible mercy and patience and love to him, something that no other religious leader showed, there had to be this voice in Matthew's mind saying, you sure you want to walk away? And this is the thing about holding on to unhealthy fears. And this sounds so counterintuitive, but part of us would rather hold on to an unhealthy fear that's familiar then let go of it and search out what isn't familiar. Search out what's new. Or I'll put it this way for number three. It can be scary to leave what's familiar even when what's familiar is not good. So you might have this fear of not being worthy or not being noticed. And you do things. So whenever you feel that way, you have a way to cope with it. Probably not healthy, but you have your way of coping with it and getting over it. 
And so you know what works. You can get by with this day after day after day. You feel this way, you do this thing, and you, you get over it, and you go to the next day. Now, it takes a toll over time, but you found a way to manage it. That's known. That's comfortable. What's scary is giving up your crutch, your coping, and saying, God, I'm going to put this unhealthy fear aside, and I want to hold on to the healthy fear of you, your promises, and your presence. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but just think this through in your life. You know what's unhealthy. So why do you hold on to it? Is it because maybe it's scary to take a step away towards what is unknown? But I just want you to know that with your father, nothing is unknown. He has a better solution, a better way to heal, not just cope. And when you leave a fear behind, there's always something better when you embrace the fear of God. And here's the fun part. So it goes straight from Jesus inviting Matthew to follow him. And as Matthew himself is recording this, he jumps straight to this big event. Right after Matthew follows him, he records this. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, so we skip the whole invitation part, like did Jesus just say, we're having dinner at your place tonight? Or did Matthew send out invitations? We don't know. What we do know is that while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came in and ate with him and his disciples. Now, I want you to picture that you're having some sort of a decent group at a restaurant. You're at one of those nice round tables and you can seat maybe eight people and you've got six seats filled. Which person in this world would cause you to get up and leave if they were to come and join your party? Don't answer out loud. Um, some of you, it, it might be a political person. It might be a certain, you know, sports, I don't, whatever it is. Is there a certain person in your life where if they would come into the restaurant and just sit at your table, you'd be like, I can't have any part of this. I'm out of here. The people who saw Jesus eating with these sinners, they recognized Jesus was not leaving the table. And this wasn't just some common, you know, restaurants type where you can sit at your various tables. This was an intimate meal. This was like, they, they set out the fine arrangements. This was a planned guest event. And Jesus was a willing participant in it. And the Pharisees, the religious people, they realize Jesus says he's a rule keeper, but he's mingling with people who aren't rule keepers. And don't you know that who you're with eventually becomes who you are. So when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Jesus' disciples, why, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, they weren't accusing him of anything. They were just asking. Just asking, why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? Doesn't he know that you become who you're with? And Jesus doesn't give his disciples a chance to answer this because when he heard what they were asking, he said, this is the reason why I came. And so perhaps he's still reclining at the table or maybe he stands up to address them. But on hearing this, it goes on, on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And we think this is maybe a common saying or a parable back then. Like, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. We're like, duh. <laughs> but I wonder if Matthew in this moment is like, Jesus, I'm right here. But the implication is so, so important. 
Jesus goes on to quote um, Hosea 6, verse 6. But go and learn. He tells the religious people, go and learn what this means. God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. When it comes to reaching out to people, don't demand sacrifice from them. Show mercy to them. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And then Jesus adds, for I have come to call, I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. And here's just one thing to keep in mind. When Jesus shared this, he didn't offend the people who were around him. Just like if a doctor were to call you and say, hey, I heard you had this condition. I want you to come see me. The idea is that they can help. So it is that when Jesus said this, Jesus believed and Jesus taught that there was hope for sinners. There was hope for people who had abandoned a fear of God and just embraced an unhealthy fear because they knew how to cope with it. People who had turned to sin as a solution. Jesus said, I can heal you. There is hope. It reminds me of when I was 19 years old, a while ago now. I was 19 years old and I had a chance to spend an entire summer in Kenai, Alaska, working at a fish processing plant, which is a glorious job, by the way. I spent an entire summer there. I was 19 and my birthday is in June. So I was actually turning 20 that, that summer. And so I was so excited for this trip. The weeks leading up to it, it was, it was going to be a crazy trip. Just all sorts of adventures. Um, I started in Oklahoma, drove up to Minnesota. From Minnesota, drove all the way to Alaska. It's like a six, five, five or six day trip with me and a friend. It was incredible. And I'll never forget the day I left home. See, this was, this was the first summer that I would have spent away from home. And I was a little sad, and I'm going to miss my parents and stuff, and so I'm hugging my dad and hugging my mom goodbye, and I'll never forget the tears flowing down one of their faces. I won't tell you which one. <laughs> but it, it was this intense sadness, and I'm like, oh, mom, I'm sorry, I gave it away. <laughs> I'm like, oh, mom. Man, it's making me sad. And so I start tearing up a little bit. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to miss you too. And so I, I saw it with sadness and yeah, drove away. And now I'm a parent and I see things on the other side. Uh, when kids are little, they are afraid to be away from mom and dad. But then they start going to school. They start having birthday parties at friends' houses. They start having sleepovers. They start having summer camps. Soon comes college, then comes the empty room. Maybe soon after that, they have a little one of their own. What started out as a little child who was afraid to be away from mom and dad is now living their life. And that's good, that's healthy. But what isn't healthy is when we forget that we are still children of God. And we wander after things that we think, this will be fun and exciting and see you later, dad, see you later, father. And we wander after solutions that are illegitimate. We hold on to fears that are not healthy. And I can't imagine the grief in heaven when children wander away. But I'm so glad that I know the joy of heaven when children come home. In fact, there was such hurt in heaven that God sent his son from heaven to the place where you and I went. 
embracing our unhealthy fears, showing us a different way to live, and showing where our fears led. I thank God that he sent his son after people like me to show mercy, not demand sacrifice, and to show grace, not to expect behavior change. That's the kind of father you have in heaven. And it's no, no accident that when Jesus taught people about faith, he pointed to little children and said, you need to have a faith like them, a faith where you fear God, fear not being you're scared of him, but fear being away from him, ready to jump through any obstacle so that you can be by his side, ready to jump any turnstile that might be in your way. That's the kind of father you have in heaven. So, what unhealthy fear have you just been wanting to hold on to? What pet fear has been hard to leave behind? Would you let the peace and power of Christ permeate that fear, show you where it ends, and show you a different way to live? So as you go home this week, maybe there's two things. Maybe you've already done a lot of work in this and you already know what your fears are and how you've been coping and how to uh, realign them. And if that's you, maybe a good application for you is to simply be curious about the people around you. Um, maybe it starts with your kids. Uh, don't judge them for the things they're doing that are naughty, but try to understand what, what are you afraid of that's causing you to do this? How, how can Jesus provide a better solution than the one you're turning to? Maybe this is a, a week of introspection for you as you think about some of the things you've been wrestling with. And you ask, God, how would your grace and your mercy in my life make it different? And the beautiful thing is that God's mercy means there is hope. He desires mercy, not sacrifice. And so, do you have a fear of God in your life? Are you in awe of God's greatness? and God's grace. To fear God is not to be afraid of him or to be scared of him or to shrink away or to wonder what he's up to. To fear God is to be afraid to be away from him. It's the love of God that made you his child. And it's the fear of God that keeps you close to him. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, you alone have a full picture and a perfect picture of what is in our hearts. You understand how sometimes things that happened earlier in life can have an impact on how we handle the rest of life. You have mercy and grace because you understand that our weakness of sin is not something that we can overcome on our own. I thank you that you loved us so much, you sent your son to where we were to save us, to rescue us, and to give us hope and grace. I pray for your wisdom among our church and among the people listening to this message that they would be able to discern what's really driving the fears that they're holding on to. And where they find an unhealthy fear that is so hard to let go, would you give them the courage to see how your solution is better? Thank you, Father, for your amazing love and forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.